Our Father, we thank you for the fact that we have heard the gospel. We've heard the good news. And that it has changed our lives and it's changed our hearts. We are so thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ laid aside his privileges and came to this earth He did not what was, well, that's not the kind of thing that we would do, but it's what he did. He laid aside his privileges. The Son of God became the God-man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross and took our sins upon him and died in our place. He was buried according to the scriptures. He rose on the third day. And then through your resurrection power, he conquered death. And <clears throat> when we hear the gospel and you open our eyes, and the Spirit of God regenerates our hearts. We're born again. And we, everything changes. We trust not in ourselves or in our works or anything else. We trust in Christ and his work on the cross. His, uh, the blood that was shed, his body which was broken in our place. And when we believe on him and his name, we are saved. But then we are to become disciples, followers. And that's when it really gets counterintuitive for us. Because Jesus told us that if we're going to follow him, we must take up our crosses and deny ourselves and follow him. That does not come naturally. That's supernatural. But it's what happens when you give us a new heart and you begin the process of maturing us in Christ. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit who illuminates the Scripture to us. We're grateful for the power of the Scripture. We are grateful that you not only save us from our sins, but you sustain us and you continue to save us all the days of our lives. We are following after you. That means, as Christian men, we're always swimming upstream. We're never going downstream. That's easy. We're never floating on a raft down the current. We're always swimming upstream against the current. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate to lead that leads to life, and few are those who find it. We thank you that through grace and mercy that comes from your hand, 
you opened our eyes to see the truth of Christ. For men who are hearing these words who have never responded to you, I pray that they would, that your Holy Spirit would pull them to you and open their eyes and cause them to be born again to a living hope in Christ. We are thankful that whenever the Word of God is taught, the very power of God is unleashed and lives are changed. It's not us, it's not a speaker or teacher, it's what you do through the power of your Word. We ask tonight for teachable hearts. We all have areas of resistance. We ask that you would knock them down. We need for you to knock them down so that we can learn, so that we can grow, so that we can become the men that you want us to become. Better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better grandfathers. You want us to be salt and light. Thank you for beginning that work and keeping it going in our lives. We're not there yet. But you're with us. And you'll keep us going. All the way. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, Solomon. Solomon was the third king in Israel. Saul was the first. David was second. Solomon was third, the son of David. I want to make four observations about Solomon tonight. I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then we'll go back and work our way through them. First observation is this, Solomon had a great start. He had a great start. Secondly, he had a great start in life. He had a great start with the Lord. Secondly, Solomon had a horrific finish, horrific. Hebrews 12 talks about the fact that the Christian life is a race. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the the men and women in Hebrews 11 who walk by faith, Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we are surrounded. Whenever you see a therefore, you stop and see what it's there for. A therefore is, is summarizing. So Hebrews 12 is summarizing what's been taught in Hebrews 11. That's God, uh, uh, Hebrews 11 is God's hall of fame. God's hall of fame is God's hall of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to God must believe that he is 
and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And he is that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The Christian life is a walk of faith. The text, Hebrews 12, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and does it not easily entangles us? Sure. Let us lay aside <clears throat> the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Before the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And it goes on. But the Christian life is a race. And the Christian life is a particular kind of race. The Christian life is not a sprint. So how do you know the Christian life is not a sprint? Because it says in Hebrews 12, 1, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life is not a sprint because to run a sprint, you don't need endurance. You just need speed. If you're running a sprint, you need uh, two things. You need speed, and secondly, you need a great start. It used to be, I always, for years, I mean, I mean, since I was a kid, I've always tried to watch the Summer Olympics 100-meter race. And it used to be, you had to watch it live, because if you didn't, it was over and done with, and it was gone. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, but uh, I always made it a point that I was going to watch that. And when you watch those guys, you're going to find out who's the fastest man in the world. It's not unusual in a sprint to see a false start. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. The reason you see so many false starts in sprints is that guys are trying to get an edge. It's such a short race. And when you really stop and think about it, those guys are world-class athletes. So the speed is about the same. The steroid level is about the same. <laughs> so how are you going to get an edge? You've got to be able to try to sink in your mind and just by a Here's breath. Beat that starter's pistol without getting caught. But usually you get caught because now they got electronics everywhere. Ah, but the Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon or an ultramarathon. I've told you about the guy I met years and years ago, and uh, he looked normal. Uh, he did. Had a nice wife. He had his kids. Met him on a Sunday morning. We had just uh, moved to Arkansas. And uh, the guy was introducing himself. And uh, yeah, I, what, what I remember about it, he, was, he came up to me and he said, hey, I'm going, going next weekend to your home turf. I'm going to California. And I said, really? And I said, what are you doing out there? He said, I'm going out for the Great Western 100. And I said, oh, great. What is that, a car race? I'd never heard of it. He goes, no, it's a running race. I'm an ultra marathoner. 
couldn't run 100 miles without stopping. Absolutely true story. I'd never heard of an ultramarathon. I said, you run 100 miles without stopping. He said, yeah. I said, the Great Western. He said, it's, uh, it, it starts on one side of Lake Tahoe, and you go over the mountains and around the lake, and you come back around, and it's 100 miles. And then there's one we'll, and every three months, and there were two other guys in the church, and these three guys, every quarter, they'd run a 100-mile, they'd run an ultramarathon. And he, then he told me about the one that runs from Death Valley in California, which is the lowest point in the continental United States, up to Mount Whitney. <laughs> the guy actually, they had printed a little booklet about their experiences, and the cover was the whole story. It showed a guy in his Nikes after the 100-mile race. And originally they had been white, but now they were more red. They looked like they had been through a shredder, and the tread was kind of hanging like that. This guy looked normal. Found out later he was a doctor. But I'm telling you, this guy was missing a couple of bolts somewhere. <laughs> because he did this for fun. <laughs> I'm not, I, I was amazed, and I continue to be amazed, that those guys would do that. But later I thought that's a pretty good picture of the Christian life. Christian life is a long race, it's a hard race, it's a difficult race. There are times when you're discouraged. There are times when you cramp up. There are times you don't think you can go on. There are times that you lose hope. There are times where you're depressed. There are times when you don't feel like getting up in the morning. There are times, it's just a hard race. But there's a race that's harder. And that's the, <laughs> that's going through life without Christ. First observation, Solomon had a great start. Second, Solomon had a horrific finish. Third, when Solomon was young, he watched over his heart. Now, I will say this. If you've been with us the last few weeks in this study, our key verse has been Proverbs 4.23. Interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit used Solomon to pin these, this verse. And the verse says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Some translations say, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Everything about you comes out of your heart. Your behavior, your actions, your attitudes, your thoughts. We won't take the time, but in Matthew 15, Jesus talked about the heart and the centrality of the heart. The heart is central to Christianity. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Deuteronomy 6. David was a man after God's own heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your speech reflects what's in your heart. Murder, fornications, evil, anything that you can think of comes out of a man's heart. 
That's why when we come to know Christ, we're given new hearts. Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart. Watch over your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. Everything about you, your behavior, you can fake it for a while, but eventually your behavior will reveal what's in your heart. So, observation number three, when Solomon was was young, he watched over his heart. Observation number four, when Solomon was old, he compromised his heart. When Solomon was old, he compromised his heart. Those are our four observations. Let's go back and let's take them apart. Observation number one, Solomon had a great start. His father was David. One of the things that David wanted to do, his dad had a heart for God. His dad messed up like you and I mess up. David loved the Lord. But David fought sin as you and I fought sin. And the world-famous ambush took place with Bathsheba, who was Solomon's mother. When they sinned, David and Bathsheba, the child was born to them. The child only only lived a few days and then died. David said, and, and David had been fasting for the child, and then he saw the servants talking, and he asked them, did the child die? And they said, yes. And David got up and cleaned himself up and went and ate. And they said, and they thought, the child's died and you're eating? And David's explanation was, basically, I can't bring him back, but one day I shall go to him. There's a very strong case that children who die in infancy go to be with the Lord. don't have time to pursue that. But God is a good God. Yes, children are born with a sin nature. But they have not yet suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They don't have a conscience. Those who would be physically or mentally impaired to such a degree that their minds are not at the normal level. God's a merciful God. So that child died. But then, after David confesses his sin, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, God restores him, gives him a clean heart, forgives him. There's the gospel in the Old Testament. David and Bathsheba are married. They have a son. His name is Solomon. David wanted to build the temple for the Lord. It was a good thing. He wanted to build the temple for the Lord. God said, I'm not going to let you build it because you're a man of war and you got blood on your hands. But I'm going to have your son build the temple. So that was Solomon's task. Solomon had a great start because his dad, David, when, when the Lord said no to David, David took it. It's not what he wanted, but he accepted it. David then began using 
the rest of his years on the earth to begin to accumulate all that would be needed in order to build that temple for the Lord. He couldn't build it. His son was going to build it. So he put all of his efforts into getting timbers and stones and all of this. I mean, he went after it. Now, there was still work to be done after he died, but, but he left Solomon in great shape spiritually. He left him in great shape spiritually because Solomon's teacher was Nathan the prophet, a man of God. So in many ways, no one has ever had a greater start than Solomon. But in a sense, every king of Israel had a great start. Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy 17. God's concerned about his leaders. We don't have any kings in here, but we have leaders. We have husbands, we have fathers, we have grandfathers. In Deuteronomy 17, God gave instruction concerning those who would ascend the uh, throne of Israel. Verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. They got to have a birth certificate. Oh, right? Isn't that what that says? That's what God says. You got to have a birth certificate. You got to prove your lineage. You got to prove you're of the nation of Israel. 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. That's interesting. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. So one of the stipulations on the king, he's got to be a countryman. He's got to prove his lineage. He's circumcised. Happened on the eighth day, part of the Abrahamic covenant. Also, the king, God says, I don't want my leaders multiplying horses. 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself. Why not? Or else his heart will turn away. It's pretty common for kings to have multiple wives, not my guys. Because their hearts will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. If you're one of my kings, you're not in it for yourself. You're in it to serve. Watch this, verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. You, when you become king, you weren't presented with a scroll. You, you weren't, that was leather bound and gold edged and all. No. You were given a scroll and with your own hand, you had to make your own copy of the law of God of the word of God in your own handwriting, in the presence of the priest. And they're looking over your shoulder and making sure you're writing it down right. Crossing the T's, dotting the I's, because it's the word of God. So you got your own copy, handwritten. 
and then you put it up on the shelf and it gathers dust, but you always can point to it. Uh Uh-uh. Next verse. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right nor to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. That's the job description for a king of Israel. Solomon did this. He wrote out the word of God in his own hand. He had a scroll. He was to read it all the days of his life. Solomon had a great start. But secondly, Solomon had a horrific finish. This is a great tragedy. I have a friend named Larry Libby. Larry is um, a gifted editor. Um, I was so thrilled when he agreed to work with me on Point Man because I knew he was Chuck Swindoll's editor. And in the preface of any of Chuck's early books, he'd always thank Larry Libby. And in God's goodness and providence, I got Larry Libby as my editor, and we wound up doing six books together. He's a great editor. He's a phenomenal writer. Larry did a book with Bruce Wilkinson called Through the, what was it called? I wrote it down. Talk Through Bible Personalities. Short bios. He did one on Solomon. And here's what Larry wrote, introduction to Solomon. The year is 970 BC, and you are faced with one of the most difficult challenges of your long, infamous career. How are you going to trap the wisest man who has ever lived? He's referring to Satan. His name is Solomon. He's the son of David, one of your arch enemies. And the Lord has equipped him with wisdom and discernment beyond that of any man who has ever walked the earth. To make matters infinitely worse, Solomon loves the Lord, the Lord whom you despise. How do you trip up a man with the resources of Solomon? Seems almost hopeless. If you were anyone else, you might be tempted to give up and find more vulnerable targets, but because you are who you are, you will not give up. You will be patient, you will bide your time and wait for an opening. It's that important to you because you know that if you can outwit the wisest man in the world, you can outwit anyone. If you can develop a strategy to ruin Solomon's life, you'll be able to employ it for generations to come on millions of God's people. And that would be, and that would give you great delight if your name was Satan. When a man gets serious about following Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. If you're just a church guy, or if you're not interested in the Lord, He's not interested. He doesn't worry about you because you're one of his. You don't know the Lord. Um, You're lost. You don't have spiritual discernment, and you're not concerned about spiritual things. But when the Lord gets a hold of a man, and you're truly born again, and you want to become 
not only are you born again, but now you want to be a follower of Christ and you want to mature in Christ. Now you've got a big time target on your back. And the enemy is going to try and take you out because he does not want you to influence those in your sphere of influence for Christ. So he's going to do whatever he can do to bring you down because he hates your Lord. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit beyond the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So if you love the Lord Jesus, just know you've got an enemy who wants to devour you and take you out. But greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. But, but you're, you're in, hey, you're in the army now. You've been drafted. And this is a war that never goes away. How do you trap the wisest man who has ever lived? That's a great question. Satan was successful. Because Solomon had a great start, but Solomon had a horrific finish. A great start in Solomon's life turned into a horrific finish. Why? Here's the answer. Because Solomon did not guard his own heart. He did not watch over his heart. The Spirit of God used him to pen those words. Now, when he was young, as we'll see in a minute, yes, Let me show you Solomon's epitaph. As we've been doing this study, we've been talking about epitaphs. When we die, there'll be some kind of a marker, your name, your date of birth, your date of death. An epitaph is a, a summary of, of a man's life, of his contribution, of what he stood for. Summary of, of you. A lot of epitaphs in Scripture. Solomon's epitaph is found in 1 Kings 11, verse 6. And we're going to be in 1 Kings 11 in a few minutes. But I'll go ahead and give you the epitaph. 1 Kings eleven six, 6. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. That's a tragic epitaph. Solomon did... What was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. So, what happened? Well, let's go to the third observation. When Solomon was young, he watched over his heart. It was of prime importance to him. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. In 1 Kings chapter 3, David is, it's his, uh, uh, Solomon, it's his inauguration, it's his coronation. Uh,
in 3.5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give to you. Quite, quite, uh, quite a statement. What would you like for me to give to you as you begin ruling my people, Israel? Now note this. Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness. Watch this. And uprightness of heart towards you. David's heart wasn't always right, but he wanted it to be right. He had the want to. Did he get ambushed? Yeah. Did he make some stupid moves? Yeah. Did he do things later he deeply, deeply regretted? Yeah, just like all of us have done. But there is forgiveness with thee. And he had a heart for God. Notice the emphasis on the heart. Solomon's going to answer the Lord's question, and really the first thing he refers to is his dad and his dad's heart. His dad showed him the importance of having a heart for God. His uprightness of heart towards you, and you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. Now watch this. Here's his request. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? God says, ask what you wish, I'll give it to you. He asks God for a wise and discerning heart. That's, that's something for a young man to do. That's a great thing for young men to ask God for. That's a great thing for any man to ask God for. If you don't have it, ask him. He loves to give it to you. James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach. You need wisdom? He'll give it to you. I can't figure this out, Lord. I, ha I just, I can't get this. I need your wisdom. He'll give it to you. He'll give it to you at the moment you need it. He loves to answer prayers like that. Look at God's response. Verse 10, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. God said to him, because you've asked this thing and not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, you've not asked for the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself discernment and understanding justice? Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that there will not be anything among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father walked, then I will prolong your days. 
Then Solomon awoke, behold, it was a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. When Solomon was young, he watched over his heart with all diligence. He asked God to give him a wise and discerning heart. That's a great prayer for all of us in this room tonight. Observation number four. When Solomon was old, he compromised his heart. And here's where we want to go to 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women who all served idols. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel. Now, let's back up. Let's not, let's not miss that first line of 11.1. Now, Solomon loved many foreign women. Women who were idolaters, okay? From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. They got his heart. He had 700 wives. I mean, this guy was insane. 700 wives. Princesses. 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away Verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. I mean, these religions were demonic. They were full of um, perversion. Children were not safe. Sexual deviancy was the norm. Yeah, Solomon built the temple, but later he built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. 
Moloch was the fire god. If you wanted to show your allegiance to Moloch, you'd take your newborn son and you'd throw him in the fire and he'd be immolated before your eyes to show your allegiance to the god. He built a temple. This also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. What happened? What happened? Let's go back to 1 Kings 3. We'll see what happened. Note 1 Kings 3, 3. No, we're going back to when he was young. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Here's the point. Generally speaking, when he was young, he had a heart for God. When he was old, he compromised his heart to the Lord. Now, was it just one afternoon? He'd gotten through a midlife crisis, and then he was, you know, he's getting older, and I don't know. I mean, how old is he? He's getting up there. He's losing some of the things he used to be able to do he can't do. That's what happens when you get older. Stuff that you never thought about, now you got to think about. you got to think about walking without falling down. you got to put your teeth in. Uh, every two hours you plan on one hour in the men's room some of you young guys don't know what I'm talking about but just it's, it's coming just wait You'll, you're going to enjoy this this is why this is a men's bible study we say thing, things in here that are for guys um, you, you know, as you get older, you lose a step. If you play basketball, you know, maybe one day you're 30, you're 31, you're playing, you're 29, and you realize you made a move, but the guy went with you. You didn't leave him. He went with you because you lost a step. Now, what's going to happen? You're going to keep losing steps in different ways. Stuff you used to be able to do, you're going to lose a step. You can still play. You can still function. And you got wisdom... When I was, uh, I was on a church staff in my late 30s, and we had some high school college guys who were pretty good basketball players challenge the, the pastors on the church staff. They wanted to play basketball. I think, and some of those guys had been on a team that just won the, the, the state. And I mean, they were good ball players. And they were kind of cocky, and they wanted to play it. They issued this challenge to the pastors. 
Oh, we're not going to play. Oh, come on, come on. I mean, you just get so funny. He said, all right, we'll play. We'll meet you. And we met him in the gym one day. And, um, you know, we're all 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43. They're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And we get in the gym, and, uh, and they just start, they just start, you know, doing their layups and doing this, and, and they're juking behind their back, and they're stuffing the ball. And what are we doing? We're over here taping up. <laughs> we're taping up. We're putting on knee braces. We're putting, you know, we're just scotch taping, scotch taping ourselves together. And uh, we're not doing anything. Nobody's juking. Nobody's doing anything. We're just kind of getting ourselves kind of ready, you know, stretching out the hamstrings. I mean, it's time to play. All right, let's play. You guys ready? All right. All right. We're playing full court. First thing we said, we're not playing full court. We don't play full court. We play half court. What do you mean you play? We're playing half court, guys. That's how it is. Oh, okay. You can do that when you're an older guy. You make the rules. And to them, it was no big deal. They're going to take us. They don't care full court or half court. They're going to take us. So we get out there and we play half court. I may not have this exactly right, but it's close. When it was 17 to nothing, In our favor. They called timeout. Why? Because they were stunned. They could out energy us, they could outrun us, they could out drive us, they could out shoot us, they could out everything us except outthink us. Because We'd been playing that game since before they were conceived. <laughs> They'd been playing a while, but they were young. One of our guys had been a linebacker for six, seven, eight, nine years with the Cowboys and the Saints. Those guys would come inside. This guy was a seminary graduate of Dallas. <laughs> was a great discipler of men. He'd put you down because that was his, that was his post. He threw an elbow at one of the guys and hit me. <laughs> but that's the game. We clean their clocks. Why? We had some experience. He didn't just, when he got old, it just wasn't one afternoon, you know, because life was, and he wasn't as young and all this, and he said, you know what, I've had it, I've just had it. I've had it with the Lord, I've had, okay, I'm all in with these. It just wasn't, it, did, it wasn't something that happened in a moment. It, it was something, here's the deal. There were cracks 
from day one in his life and in his heart. They just weren't exposed until years later. And he never, he never dealt with the cracks. He never dealt with the... What he did was, and it's all right there in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He wasn't supposed to do that. Bill Lawrence, for years, he's a professor emeritus at Dallas Seminary, great Bible teacher. Bill has a, how many pages in this thing? little booklet called 18 pages. This thing is brilliant. It's called The Principle of Accept. E-X-C-E-P-T. It's about Solomon. It's brilliant. So what happened to Solomon? Well, here's what happened. He started out with a heart for God, but when he got old, he compromised. Yeah, here's what happened. You see, uh, all along the way, and at first it wasn't all that obvious, but if you look, you can see it. What happened was, from day one with the Lord, he made exceptions to God's commands. It was gradual over the years. In other words, uh, Philip Ryken says, if you look closely at his life, you'll see that there were warning signs of where he was going. Uh, Solomon was a guy who consistently ran the yellow lights. What's a yellow light? It's a warning. Prepare to stop. Prepare to stop. And great tragedies happen sometimes when a guy runs a red light. Horrific things occur because someone doesn't heed the warning. Solomon consistently ran the yellow lights. He ignored the warning signs. Let me just show you some in 1 Kings 3, even when he was young. <clears throat> Note 1 Kings 3, 1. He's young. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. He just took a foreign wife. God said, you don't take a foreign wife. Her father was not a worshiper of the one true God. She was not a worshiper of the one true God. Now, what they would do back in this day, I mean, she was probably pretty hot. But there was more to it than that. Because back in his day, politically, what kings would do is that there was always some big daddy nation that scared everybody, and then other nations would get together and kind of form a NATO deal. I mean, we still do it today. We did it after World War II. You create these alliances, and you know, you send your ambassador and their ambassador. This is going for months and years and years and years. That's one way to do it. Another way to form an alliance is to marry the guy's daughter. And then you're going to have his grandkids, and he's not going to be attacking you because you've got his grandkids. And that guy is going to be very motivated to get along with you, and if someone's going to come and attack you, he's going to come to your aid. 
And so that's how they got into this whole multiple wife thing. But is it not true that in Deuteronomy 17, God said specifically, you shall not multiply wives. She was the first, and she was an unbeliever, and he was unequally yoked. He had a heart for God. She didn't. So if you're a young guy and you want to get married, that's a great thing. That's a godly thing. Look for, do you have a heart for the Lord? You look for a gal who has a heart for the Lord. If she doesn't, you run. There's no reason to go to the single bars because the girl you're looking for isn't there. Is she? If she has a heart for the Lord, she's not hanging out, showing all kinds of cleavage with about four drinks under. Is that who you want to marry? No. Wise up. That's the first warning sign. Next verse is the next warning sign. The high places. Uh, the high places are in the next two verses. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. He hadn't built the temple yet. Now Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The high places were the former places up on the hills and the mountains where the previous godless people who lived in the land, the ites, with their idols, this is where they worshipped and did their sexual perversion and their acts and the cutting of themselves and all kinds of sexual promiscuity and just demonic stuff. But they were gone, and they were pretty areas and all that, so... Um, the people were still sacrificing on the high places, and Solomon loved the Lord, but he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. You say, well, what's the problem? There wasn't a temple. The problem was Deuteronomy 12, verse 2. And if you look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 2, God says, I want you to destroy the high places. He made his own copy of the law with his own hand. He knew Deuteronomy 12.2, but he made an exception. He knew Deuteronomy 17 about wives, about foreign wives. He made an exception. So here you got this guy running two yellow lights, running two warning signs. You're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way, and he just keeps blowing right through them. You got a third one in, King, in 1 Kings 4, verse 26. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He liked horses. But once again, you go back to Deuteronomy 17, and what did the Lord clearly say? You don't multiply horses. He just ran right through that one, and he multiplied horses. Because he liked stuff. He liked possessions. He didn't ask for them. God gave it to him. But really, you know, when you're young, you can't handle a lot of prosperity. 
I mean, just look at pro athletes. Most of them, what they're being given, they lose. Not all of them, but most of them. He just ran, he just ran that yellow light on horses. And then you got another one. 1 Kings 6. This one is kind of interesting. This one is more subtle. But it shows you what's happening in his heart with time, with time, with time. When you make exceptions, and instead of doing what God says, you make exceptions, and you make excuses. And instead of obeying, you run through it because you want to. That's going to hit you, you, that's going to hit every area of your life. Look at 1 Kings 6, verse 38. Last sentence. He was seven years in building the temple. He got it done. He got it done. Seven years in building. And it was incredible. It was magnificent. Next verse. Now Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Something's wrong there. The house of God was unbelievable, took seven years. He builds himself a house, it took almost double the time because you see, it was almost double the greatness. Something's wrong with his heart. This little booklet by Bill Lawrence is gold. He says this, Truly Solomon was the wisest man in the world, not, a, not in theoretical wisdom, but in living wisdom, and we, in wisdom that teaches us all how, how to live well. Yet Solomon in his old age became an idolatrous man, a leader who worshipped many foreign gods, who turned his heart from the one true God to false gods. Amazing, isn't it? That a young man who was so utterly dependent on God could grow to become an old man, totally taken up with idols. Bill Lawrence says this, it all starts with one simple word and progresses to the core reality of every leader. As with many other simple words, it is very easy to overlook, though it introduces us to the key to Solomon's life and helps us to understand how the wisest man in the world became the man that he became. And it should alert us to the reality that this terrible downward progression could happen in our leadership as well. This word opens up the door to Solomon's life and takes us into the essence of his failure as a leader. And then he quotes 1 Kings 3.3, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except. You see the title, the principle of except. It'll take you down. There it is. Solomon loved the Lord, and for all outward appearances, he was God's man in every way with one exception. He worshipped where he wasn't supposed to worship. Tragically, that exception became the rule in Solomon's life. He had a heart for the true God, but there was room in his heart for false gods. At first, it was not a major concern in Solomon's life, but ultimately became the reality that brought him down. Then Lawrence says this, and, and we're leaders. You're a man, you're a leader. Husband, you're a leader. Father, you're a leader. You say, yeah, I'm not married, I don't have kids. 
you're still a leader. Somebody's watching you. You might be a leader at work. You might coach. You might, you're a leader. God made men to lead. Lawrence says this, the heart of the leader is the heart of leadership. The most important dimensions in a leader's life is the leader's heart. A leader has three dimensions, head, hands, and heart. The head stands for how the leader thinks and speaks. The hands stand for how the leader acts, but the heart is. The heart is the core, the leader's essence, and whatever is in the heart will come out through the leader's words and actions. The head and the hands are only as effective as the heart is healthy. So guard your heart. No matter what we do to fill the head or train the hands, unless the heart is transformed, there will be no change in the leader. He will continue to be and do what the heart wants. What do we mean when we speak of the heart? And this is brilliant. For leaders to become the, for leaders to become the kind of men God wants us to be, we must learn to have altered hearts. He spells it. A-L-T-A-R-E-D. Why would he do that? Uh, just quickly check out Romans 12. This I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know what that means? We get on the altar. Matthew 16. Twenty-four. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will, you want to save your life? You'll lose it. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? By altered, A-L-T-A-R-E-D, we're followers of Christ, and we are to become living sacrifices. Not my will, but thine be done. Someone has said, that's the prayer that's always answered. You want God to answer prayer? Pray that prayer. So often it's, isn't it true? We pray, we don't say it, but we're saying, not your will, Lord, but mine be done. You got to get on the altar, man. I got to get on the altar. All right. We must learn to have altered hearts. Most leaders think this is a settled issue when you came to know Christ. It's something they did when they decided to follow God radically. After all, they gave up making money or living comfortably or marrying somebody they might have desired to marry. They, like the disciples, may have turned from a family business or the life they've always known to go to a faraway place and to people they don't particularly care if they live among them. They may have chosen to learn a new language, go on the mission field, etc., etc. 
If they do that and leave their loved ones behind, it's because they have put their hearts on God's altar. God doesn't call everyone to do that, but he'll call you to do it in a different way. He goes on and says, every leader must understand that putting our hearts on the altar is not an event, but a lifetime process that releases us more and more to lead for Christ. That is absolutely true. Through this process, we discover no matter how much we have put on the altar, there is always more for us to release to God. We discover rights we never knew we prized, expectations we never realized we had, motivations we never recognized until God called for us to put them on his altar. Our hearts are never totally altered. Our hearts are always being altered. And that is why we must return again and again to God's altar to take new dimensions of our hearts out of our hands and put them in his hands. As we grow older, the altar grows larger until it encompasses every part of our beings as God calls us to face our final death. That's when the process of an altered heart, no, that's what the process of an altered heart is. It is a series of deaths, of self-denials, until we face the ultimate death, the death of our bodies, the physical envelope that contains all that we are in our hearts. This is what makes putting our hearts on God's altar so overwhelming, why we cannot do this apart from his enabling grace. Each time we do this, we choose to die to one more passion and give up one more prize. Yet each time we do this, we discover another reality in Christ that far surpasses what we have in ourselves. The process of the altered heart is painful, but purifying. It is costly, but rewarding. It's death, but life and greater life we could ever know apart from God's altar. That's the Christian life. Now what happened was that Solomon somewhere refused that process. The Spirit of God would convict him. Isn't this what happens? He's going to take that foreign wife. Do you not think that the Spirit of God convicted his heart and spoke to his heart about that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking he had godly advisors. I'm thinking someone loved him enough to tell him the truth and to speak to him. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Did he listen? No. No. He was hell-built on running that warning light. The high places. He loved it up there. He loved those trees. I mean, it was just so peaceful. It was just so... But God said destroy it. He didn't destroy it. Did he have some horses? Yeah, the best, the best there, that there were. But he wanted more. Each time he made an exception in his own life, and the exception is, I'm not going to obey what God has clearly said. The Spirit of God convicted him, yet he kept going. That is the road to ruin and to disaster. 
And we are all prone to wander, as the old hymn says, we are all prone to leave the God we love. We all deal with this stuff, all of us. It's in our hearts. John Phillips has written uh, a short account of Solomon's life. Here's what he says. Solomon lost his sense of direction. Success went to his head and it ruined him. He went in more and more for the tinsel glory of this world. He lost sight of the true glory, the glory that grows from within. The world, the flesh, and the devil lured him away from his vision of Calvary, the Messiah who would come. He got lured away from his daily time in the Scriptures, Deuteronomy 17, from his communion with the Lord and from his dependence on God's Word in the place of prayer. This is how the enemy always works. He does not want you in the Word of God. I'm telling you, Solomon put away that scroll. When he was young, he would read it. And then what happens? You get real busy. You get this, and you get this, and you get text at 4.30 in the morning. You get this, and, and, you, and, and it's no stuff. But you know what? You've got to draw some boundaries. You have to. It is not an idle word. It is your life, Deuteronomy 32. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You've got to be feeding on the Word of God, Matthew 4, 4. And, I mean, I've heard this all my life because it's true. He will do whatever he can do to get you out of your Bible and to compromise. And there's always a pull and there's always an excuse. We have to get ruthless. In the end, Solomon made shipwreck. He was saved, but so as by fire. His great gifts and abilities were all used for the wrong ends. He finished his days writing the book of Ecclesiastes, a long, sad wail of regret over a misspent life. You remember we studied that a couple years ago. Solomon in Ecclesiastes is talking about the futility of life under the sun. Because that's where he lived for years and years and years. God's over the sun. He was living under the sun, pursuing this and this and this and this. He couldn't get enough. And in that un insatiable quest for more, he says, I hated my life. Why? Because he wasn't losing his life. He was trying to find his life. You try to find your life, you're going to lose it. He plied his pen with frantic haste, hoping to undo at the last what he had spent a whole life doing. But for him and his generation and the ones that followed, it was too late. He had sowed his field with salt, and now nothing would grow. He, we never see, there's never a statement that he repented. But obviously, reading between the lines, there was a point after all of this took place the idols, the women, and all that, where he turned back to the Lord, he wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, warning those readers, don't do what I did. 
Fear God and keep his commandments. When Thomas Paine, the atheist, back during the American Revolution, when Thomas Paine, the atheist, was on his deathbed, he was nursed by a godly young Quaker woman named Mary Roscoe. Once he asked her if she had read any of his books. Yes, she said, I began to read The Age of Reason, but the more I read, the more dark and distressed I felt. Finally, I threw it into the fire. Ah, said the dying man, I wish all had done as you. For if the devil has ever had a hand in any work, he has had it in the writing of that book. Again and again, when going to his room to carry him some refreshment, she overheard his wail of despair. O Lord, Lord God Almighty, O Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. It would indeed be a great trophy of grace if Thomas Paine were to be in heaven. Why not? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He was calling on the name of Jesus after a wasted life. But so far as his misspent life was concerned, it was too late. So far as him doing all the damage he had done was concerned, it was too late. So far as recalling all the copies of his book was concerned, that was too late. It's not too late for us. Uh, we've all done what Solomon has done. If the Spirit of God is dealing with you in an area, and you know he's dealing with you, quit fighting him. Yield. Obey. Do what he says. How long are you going to put up? How long are you going to stay down this path of utter futility? These things were written for our instruction. For all of us, we've all got the same kind of hearts dealing with these issues. Let's get it right with the Lord. He'll receive you. He'll forgive you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he will restore you and he will put you back on the path and the years that you have remaining. You can live in repentance. And his grace and mercy will come upon you. And there can actually be a reversal. And indeed, you can become a leader and you can become a man of influence for the kingdom of God. He does it all the time. I've had guys tell me over the years, guys, much like Solomon, and say, Steve, I've wasted. I, I, I had a calling on my life when I was young, but I got off, Steve. And I had guys with tears say, I've wasted my life. 
that my, my desire down deep, what I want is to be used by God. And I just, I'm grieved that God can't use me. I said, yeah, but you're returning to the Lord. You've confessed all this stuff. You've repented, yeah, yeah. But, but I, all those wasted years. I, I just wanted, I just wish I could have been used. So let me get this straight. You've come to the Lord, you've repented. Has he forgiven you? Yes, I know he has. Has he forgotten your sin? He says that he has. I believe he's forgotten it. But you don't think he can use you because your failure was so great. Yes, yes. You think God can't use you because you're a failure? Yes. Well, then let me ask you something. Who else is he going to use? He's got no one else to choose from. Because we're all failures. And what he does is, <laughs> this is what he does. He takes a bunch of failures. And he puts a new heart in them. And he breaks their heart. And you think you're finished. And then by his power, he raises you up. And he starts to use you for his glory. In his way, in his time. It's what he does. He's a savior. So we come to you, Lord Jesus thanking you for salvation when we were born again and thanking you that you continue to save us from ourselves and our foolishness and our past. I pray for the man who has been convicted tonight of where he is and what he is playing with and what he is considering, and I pray that your spirit would overwhelm him and pull him to you, and that he would turn from his sin and from his idols and turn to the living God and receive forgiveness and new life in Jesus. In your great name we pray. Amen.